When I was 19 years old, I participated in what was arguably the funniest and absolutely the most diabolical prank that I have ever personally witnessed. I was in Darfur, Sudan uh, with a small group of guys, including my dad and this guy named Brad, who was the founder of this ministry called Persecution Project. Uh, and, and Persecution Project, what they would do is they would go to the places of the world that were too dangerous, where no one else wanted to go, where government agencies, where other ministries, where you, the, the United Nations, where they would all pull out of because it was too dangerous. And they would find the people there, and they would love the people there, and they would do their best to provide for their needs, and they would bring the gospel in the process. Uh, now, this guy, Brad, who is the founder of that ministry, uh, he's a very unique guy. I don't know that I've ever met a guy like Brad. Uh, he has the driest sense of humor I've ever met. He puts British people to shame. Um, and, and, and on top of that, his sense of humor is just really different. Um, and before I get into this joke, I just want to give you a little context to Brad, because I would hate for anybody to, like, to misunderstand his character in this, right? Guys like Brad, uh, well, Brad has spent his life actively stepping into dangerous situations in order to love and to care for the people who've been thrown into those dangerous situations. There is not a sliver in his heart that would ever demean or diminish or make light of those individuals or of their circumstances. Um, but guys like Brad sometimes develop a different sense of humor not to make light of those situations or those people, but to actually try to bring some light into it, to bring a little bit of laughter, a little bit of joy, a little bit of humor. Um, and Brad, in his weird sense of humor, does that very effectively. Um, so anyway, we're, we're in Darfur, Sudan. It's around 2008 or so. Um, I was 19 years old. And if you don't know, Sudan is not the most stable part of the world. At that point in time, they had just come out of a civil war, uh, which is why now we don't have Sudan. We have North Sudan and South Sudan. And there was an act of genocide taking place in Darfur. Um, and we had been there for a few days in this refugee camp in the middle of the desert, uh, and there were these other, this other group of guys that was set to come join us uh, by, by Brad's invitation. Um, and we woke up on the morning when they were going to land on the little plane, uh, and Brad said, hey, do you guys want to play a prank on these guys? And we said, well, what did you have in mind? And he said, well, I was thinking we could convince them that their lives were in danger and that they were about to face a moral quandary like something they've never faced before. <laughs> and we were like, uh, yeah, that sounds hilarious. Okay, let's go for it. You know, why not? So we came up with a plan, and a couple hours later, the guys land in their little putt-putt plane with the propellers, right? And they land on the airstrip, which is just a fancy word for a big plot of dirt that's kind of flat-ish. And Brad goes alone to meet them in the airplane. As soon as the plane lands, he pops his head in the door or hatch or whatever you call an airplane door. Um, he pops his head in, and all super serious, selling it like you wouldn't believe. He just goes, all right, here's what I need everybody to do. Grab your stuff, grab your bags, get off the plane, follow me, be quick, don't say a word, and don't panic. And they absolutely obeyed him probably in everything except for that last bit about not panicking. Um, and so he, they just book it back to the base where the rest of us were waiting uh, under this, uh, this like long open air hut situation. We're sitting on cots and beds and chairs and tables and stuff in kind of a half circle. Uh, and Brad points to a spot on the ground and he says, put your stuff down there and take a seat. And they do exactly what he says. This is like really like serious and like, oh gosh, what's going on? The rest of us, were all in on the joke, right? We're sitting down and looking like... This is a heavy situation, you know? Uh, and Brad starts spinning his tail, and he says, okay, here's the situation. Yesterday, we went up to the river. We thought it was safe. We thought it was under southern control. What we didn't understand is that there were Janjaweed spies up there. Janjaweed are the bad guys. He says, now, I've been informed that they saw us, and they're now coming down here. They should be here in about six to 24 hours. I've also been informed that the militia is pulling out. 
And he paused and he let that sink in, let the other guys freak out a little bit, like, oh my gosh, are you serious? This is really happening? This is exactly what I thought was going to happen. Oh my gosh. And the rest of us were sitting there trying to have the same face, like, oh, you know? And they said, now you got two options. Option A, the plane is still here and it has enough gas to get you back to Kenya. Option B, you see that hut over there, the one that's locked up? It's full of arms and munitions. <laughs> so you can take option A, there's no shame in it. But as for me, I'm gonna stay and fight. And he's like flawless. I mean, you really believe that. And the guy, like, he's been in these kind of situations, you know? And so, like, so we, just like we planned, we paused again. We let it sink in. We let everybody freak out. And then me as the 19-year-old, as the youngest guy in the group, I stood up a moment later and I said, and I will fight with you. <laughs> and then a moment later, the next guy in on the joke, he stands up too and he says, as will I. And the third guy stands up and he says, as will I. And my dad, who's the oldest guy in the group, he stands up and he says, as will I. And these guys, like, they're totally, I mean, everybody's flawless in their delivery. And then a moment later, Brad puts his fist in the air, and he says, and we will fight like men. And the rest of us put our fists in the air in unison and shouted, and they will die like dogs. And we started, like, shouting and making, like, bear noises and just being as manly as we can. And those manly noises slowly devolved into laughter and maybe a little bit of giggling. And then before you know it, a couple of us are, like, rolling around in the dirt, trying really hard not to tinkle just a little bit, um, as you do. And the other guys were terrified because not only are their lives in danger, but now half of the guys they're with are having some sort of psychotic break. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't until the third or fourth time that Brad reassured them through like teary eyes, no, I promise, it's, we were just messing with you, it's fine, it's not, everything's okay, you're safe. It wasn't until then that they were like, oh, uh, oh okay. And it was so interesting, right, There's, like what those other guys faced, because they really didn't know it was a joke. And there's a little part of me that envies them. There's a big part that doesn't, but there's a little part of me that envies those guys who weren't in on the joke because you don't know how you're gonna react sometimes to certain situations until you face that situation. And even though it was a joke, they faced the situation. There's one guy I feel bad for. The entire time Brad was talking, he was livid, like fire in his eyes, fuming, angry. And later when we said, what was going through your mind? He was like, yeah, I was angry. Because like Brad convinced me it was safe to come here and then the moment I get here, it's like we're about to be in a battle? No, I'm getting on the plane, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And there was this other guy, Eduardo, he's actually like a, like a kind of famous telenovelas actor. Um, he had a very different response. The, as soon as Brad started talking and he realized, like, okay, this is happening, he reaches into his bag and pulls out his camera and just starts filming everything. And the whole time, he's just like, yeah, okay. All right, okay. And later when we asked Eduardo what was going through his mind, he said, you know, what was going through my mind was, was like a lot of people told me I shouldn't come. My mother told me I shouldn't come. My manager told me I shouldn't come. All my friends told me I shouldn't come, but I just knew that Jesus was telling me that I needed to come here. And so as soon as Brad started saying that, I thought, this is it. This is why Jesus called me to be here, and the world needs to know. They need to know what the Lord's going to do, they, whether, we, whether we make it out of here or not, and maybe the camera, if we die, maybe it'll make it out, but maybe the Lord will deliver us, and we'll have it on film, and the world will know what God did. And I cannot express to you the amount of respect that I gained for this guy in that moment. Right, because he didn't know it was a joke. Because in that moment, he did not love his life so much as to shrink from death. He conquered, he overcame, he triumphed in that moment. 
He just wanted to see what Jesus was going to do a little bit more than he wanted to be safe. I don't know if you guys caught David's message last week. I'd encourage you to go listen to it if you didn't. David did a really good job of painting a beautiful picture of these rewards that Jesus offers for whoever overcomes. In these seven letters to the churches, Jesus ends every single one of them saying, to he who overcomes, I'll give this. To he who overcomes, I'll give that. I'll give like this white stone with a secret name. I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll write their name in the book of life. I'll robe them in white. Jesus is painting this picture for us of the rewards of overcoming. And I love that the book of Revelation, it gives us more than just the motivation. Right, it tells us more later on. It gives us a little glimpse of the epilogue. Because if you're like me, you're reading through those letters and you get to the end of each one and you ask yourself, how do I overcome? I wanna win, I wanna overcome. Overcoming, winning, it's not easy. A lot more people fall than overcome in most situations. So how do I overcome and receive not just the rewards that Jesus spelled out, but the reward of the sweetness of like victory itself and best of all, the reward of being with Jesus in eternity? How do I get that? How do I do that? How do I overcome? It's an important question. Humanity has been asking that, questions, that question since the fall. Since the first time we didn't overcome. How do I overcome? And you're probably asking yourself in small and very significant ways in your own life, how do I overcome this addiction? How do I overcome the difficulty in my marriage? How do I overcome the, like, the troubles that this world and the brokenness in it is like pouring out onto my kids? How do I overcome? And most importantly, like, how, do I, how do I make it through to the end? And have that ultimate overcoming, that ultimate victory. Well, the book of Revelations, like I said, it shows us a glimpse of the epilogue. It shows us a scene of those who have overcome once they have already overcome. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see this picture of a great crowd of people, and they're clothed in white, just like Jesus promised to he who overcomes. And we're told that, that they came through the tribulation, they came through the trials, they didn't fall in it, they came through it, they overcame, they were victorious, they triumphed, they conquered. And we're told that they're robed in white because the blood of the lamb has washed them. And then in Revelations chapter 12, we're told about the enemy, about Satan, about the accuser, and how he's defeated. And it says this in verse 11 of chapter 12. It says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is it. That's it. That's the strategy. You want to know how to win? You want to know how to conquer, how to overcome? Boom. There it is. It's not just, here's my theory of how you win. It's, this is how they win. This is a glimpse into the future of the victory of those who are victors. It's the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. This is worth sinking our hearts into. This is worth rooting ourselves into. What does that mean? And I think you and I, we could and we probably should sit down and have hours-long conversations about what the blood of the lamb is, what that means to overcome by that, what it means to overcome by the, uh, by the word of our testimony. And there's a lot that I think we would pick up on that God is trying to say and communicate to us in that. But there's at least one thing that I think would go right over our heads because, uh, or, sorry, one thing that would go over our heads that I think the early church would have absolutely wrapped their mind around really easily because they were in a very different, culture than ours. There was something in the cultural air that they breathed that you and I miss out on. 
In particular, what was in the air that they breathed that, that we don't necessarily have as much in our culture is something called the patron-client system in the ancient Roman world. Now, the patron-client system uh, it was ubiquitous in the ancient Roman world. Jews, Greeks, Romans, they would have all been familiar with it, and it's really complicated, but to wildly oversimplify it, it was this vast network of social, connetwork, uh, so, social, connetworks, social connections uh, that was primarily comprised of relationships between patrons and clients. Whoever named the patron-client system was very clever. Um, and those relationships, sorry, uh, let me talk about who those people are before telling how those relationships happen. So the patron would be someone who was higher up in social standing, in authority, in honor, in wealth, in influence. The patron would be someone who, when they tweet, everybody retweets. They'd be someone who probably drives a Tesla, and everybody's like, listen, and man, the Tesla, it sounds so nice. And then the other guy's like, well, it doesn't sound at all. And the first guy's like, yeah, that's what's so nice. It's so quiet. Tesla, he's a patron. What a nice car. And the client would be someone who doesn't have a Tesla. The client would be someone lower down in all of those categories. And they would engage in this relationship, and the relationship between patron and client would be comprised of these two ideas, these two words. The first word would be charis, the Greek word uh, that we translate as both gift and grace. Exact same word. It's the word from which we get charismatic, right? Like a charismatic speaker who's gifted, or like it's the same word from which we get charity, someone who gives gifts all the time. A free gift of grace. And then the other word would be uh, pistis. And pistis, what that is, is it's the Greek word for faith, right? Like a faithful friend, like a faithful brother, a faithful sister, a faithful husband or wife, someone who's there, someone who shows up, someone who's bought in. And they're there when things are hard and when you need them. And so the patron would initiate this relationship with a charis, would offer this free gift. It wasn't an economic exchange. It wasn't a loan. They're not a banker. The, the, the client is not expected to buy back, to pay back. But they were, if they accepted the gift, the charis, they were accepting a new kind of relationship with the patron. They were actually entering into something like the patron's extended family. That's why the word patron is connected to the word uh, for father. They were saying, yeah, I'm gonna step into your family. And the expectation is not that they would pay back, but that they would reciprocate with pistis, with faithfulness, to show up to be in your corner. So imagine you're in the ancient Roman world and you're a fisherman and your boat sinks one day and it's a horrible, tragic, sad day. And now you have no means to provide for your family or for yourself. And so you're talking to your friend one day who says, man, I have this awesome patron. He's such a good guy. He's such a good like father figure in my life. And the best part for you is that he loves fish tacos. <laughs> now, I, I know that there are not fish tacos in Rome, but there should have been. <laughs> if they accomplished anything good, let's pretend that they, that they had fish tacos, right? And so he says, he loves fish tacos. And you say, that sounds great. Can you introduce me to him? So the next morning, your friend, he takes you to his patron's house and he introduces you and you say, hey man, did you know that I'm a, that I'm a fisherman whose boat sunk? And the patron gets a little excited. He smiles and he says, I, 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 I love fish tacos. And you say, yeah, I, I, make good, I make really good fish tacos when I can get fish, but I can't get fish because my boat, it sunk. And he thinks about it for a moment. He says, can I offer you a caress, a free gift? Can I buy you a new boat? And if you accept that gift, which you do, you're accepting a new kind of relationship. You're saying, this man becomes like a father to me. And I can never pay him back for this boat, but I can reciprocate with peace, just with faith. 
And so you start telling all of your friends about this awesome patron you have, how loving he is, how good he is, how kind he is, that he gave you this boat. He's so great. And then a little while later, he decides to, to run for local council, right? And so you show up at the polls and you tell everybody, hey, vote for this guy. He's a good father. He cares for me. He gave me a boat. He's so cool. Vote that guy. And then a little while later, when he wins, he throws a party and he invites everybody. And who's going to cater for free with fish tacos? You. Why? Not because you're paying him back for the boat, but because you love him, because you're faithful, because you're reciprocating his gift in this relationship with peace, with, with faithfulness. And you want to see his family grow. We don't have a lot like this in our culture, but we do have some things that kind of look like it. I think the thing that most looks like it in our culture uh, is the caress of an engagement ring. Right, a few years back when I was ready to engage in a new kind of relationship with Colleen, what did I do? I saved up for months and months and months and I bought what was pound for pound, still is pound for pound, the most expensive thing I've ever purchased. And I took her up to the Compass Room downtown, which if you don't know, it's at the top of the skyscraper and it's way too expensive a restaurant for me and it spins around really slowly and it overlooks the whole city. We got like a dessert, you know? Um, <laughs> And at some point in time, I got down on my knee and I offered her this caress. And at no point in time did I expect her to pay me back. Right, like, like that's not how that works. Can you imagine if, if, you know, today I was like, hey, it's been a few years, you never paid me back for that ring I got you. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way, right? But, what, but there were expectations, right? It wasn't a debt that she incurred, but the expectation is that she would reciprocate with what? With pistas, with faithfulness, by showing up, by engaging in the relationship, by saying, yeah, I'm your wife and I'm in your corner. And if a little while later when we exchanged caresses again and we, ex kisses too, you know, caresses and kisses, right? When we did that and we exchanged those two things, right? If, there, if the relationship hadn't changed after that, if there hadn't been faithfulness, then those caresses, they mean nothing. If we didn't move in together, if we didn't start sharing life together, making decisions together, joining our finances, doing everything as, as, as a unit, then, it, then, then they're not, they're just rings. It's, it's the pistos that validates the offer of relationship. And this is our relationship with God. And this is exactly what God is trying to highlight for us in Revelations chapter 12, verse 11. How do they overcome? By the caress of God by the blood of the lamb, the freely given gift of grace that God offered. And then they overcame by engaging in a new kind of relationship with God, by accepting that and reciprocating, not paying for, not earning, not deserving, but by reciprocating in relationship with pistis, with faithfulness, with the word of their testimony, by going around and telling everybody, let me tell you about my patron, let me tell you about my father, he's so good, he loves me so much, he gives me these caresses, these gifts, all the time. Let me tell you about the great things that I've seen happen, and, and because of him, because of his goodness, and let me, let me help grow his family with the word of my testimony. This is how you and I overcome the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. We engage in a new kind of relationship with God. We accept the blood of the lamb. We accept his freely given gift of grace. And we reciprocate with peace, with faithfulness. This is why Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, feed my sheep. 
This is why James says, you show me your work apart from your faith. I show you my work by my faith. This is why we know that we're saved by grace through faith, by charis through pistis. And how does the blood of the lamb come into play when we're trying to overcome? Imagine the, the accuser, Satan. This is what they're talking about in this chapter. He's defeated. How is he defeated? Because he's sitting there and he's pointing at you and he's making accusations. He's saying, you are dirty, you're filthy, you're a sinner, you're an addict, you're not an overcomer, you're a loser. And he hurls these accusations at us, but they fall to the ground and they shrivel up because although they may once have been true, they are now lies because we've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And I know that there are more than a few of us here in this room who don't feel like we're winning. You feel stuck in your sin. And you've been trying and you've been trying and you've been trying to do it. You've been trying to be good enough to earn God's love. You've been trying to be good enough to feel like you should be in this room. But you've got it all messed up. That's not how it works. You will never earn his charis. You can never pay him back for it, and he doesn't want you to. It was a free gift. How insulting to try to pay someone back for a freely given gift of grace. It begins, the overcoming begins by his blood. And when we talk about the strategy of winning and how can we win better, how can we do better in order to win, the thing that we can't do better at is the blood of Jesus. A, because there's nothing better than it. It has the power to wash away sin. There's nothing stronger. We can't improve. We can't grow that muscle, even if it was ours. But it's not ours. It was a free gift of grace. And it's so good and it's so powerful. And it ends with that, but it begins with that. And so what is the part that we actually could try to grow and get stronger at and grow the power and the strength and the size of? It's the word of our testimony. It's the part that we play, the pistis, the faithfulness. Now, if you've been in church long enough, you may have accidentally begun to believe that your testimony, this is a partial truth, that your testimony is the story of how you came to Jesus. That's, that's true, but it's a tiny sliver of your testimony, right? And you can lean into that, and you can grow that. You can say, Jesus, complete the work you've started in me. You can say, what are the areas in my hearts? In fact, I'd encourage you just right now. Say, God, what are the areas in my hearts in my heart, that you want to do a work in, that you have a grace for, but I've been clinging on to. Start releasing those things to him. Start walking into him in that, and I promise you, your testimony will grow. But that's not it. I mean, that's just the beginning of your testimony. Sometimes Christians who've grown up in the church and don't have a dramatic story of how they came to Jesus, they console each other by saying things like, you know, part of your testimony, you know, it's not as cool because you didn't overcome this addiction or this or that or whatever, but part of your testimony is the fact that Jesus kept you from the pain of that addiction or whatever. That's, that's true. That's worth sharing. But that falls so far short of the encouragement that we could be giving each other to say, actually, you can grow your testimony. There's more to it than just what Jesus has done in your life because there is more to witnessing than simply what you have personally experienced. It's also what you have witnessed, what you've seen. There's more to your testimony than what happened to you. You can also testify about what happened 10 feet away from you. Right, imagine that you wanted to grow. Imagine one of your dreams in life was like to testify in court about an auto accident case. 
you're weird, I'm sorry, I don't know why that's your, your desire. Hopefully, you know, you don't wanna see anybody get hurt in the process. But you would be so silly to stay inside if that was your goal and to like draw the blinds and to just wait there. You would never testify, you would never witness because you would never see anything. No, if that was your goal, you would get out and you go to the busy streets and you might even grab like a lawn chair and sit at a busy intersection and just sit there and watch and watch the cars as they drive by and wait to see if you could see an accident. So one day you could show up in court and you could say, yeah, I know there was a conflict there, but it was that guy, he hit that guy, it was his fault, that's my testimony. You bring your testimony that you've grown by getting out and just waiting. It's kind of like fishing, right? You just wait, 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 and then all of a sudden something exciting happens. This is how we grow our testimony. We grow our testimony by getting out and watching what Jesus might do. And this is where it comes into play that they love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. It's so easy for us to get stuck at home, to get caught up in our own busyness, in our own kingdom, paying the mortgage, paying off the car. It's so easy to get caught in trying to climb the chain at work. And not all of those things are bad. I'm not trying to make you feel a great sense of shame for those things, but, but maybe they're in the wrong place in your priorities. Maybe you ought to carve out some time to go out to the streets and just watch, to go meet some people who are still very broken. I know there's, I love that Veronica said this morning that this room is full of broken people. And most of the broken people in this room, we've experienced some of the power of Jesus already. So statistically, this is not necessarily the best place to see some of the power of Jesus. Now that's, now, that's not entirely true. Stay here, stay connected in this community. That's vital to overcoming. But also go out and find some people who've never tasted of the power of God. Find some people who are still broken, who are still stuck. Find some addicts and see if the Lord might bring them freedom. Right? Find some people who have been sexually broken and see if the Lord might heal them. Find some people who have been doing some sexual breaking of their own and see if the Lord might turn them into healers. A couple of years ago, my wife and I, we did one of the scariest things we've ever done. I know I tell stories about this every time I go, but we, we picked up and we went to a country where we didn't speak the language, and the first day we got there, I remember there were tears being shed, and we were like, what are we doing here? We don't know what's going on. It was terrifying. And what did we see? Well, it's not what we experienced, right? It's what we saw that changed our lives. I got to see women come out of prostitution and come into a healthy life where they knew that they were pure and holy and clean. I got to see actual human traffickers. There's, I told you a story about this you know, a while back, but I saw at least a couple of them, but one particular human trafficker uh, who was a pimp, and she came out and she started following Jesus, and now the story's evolved since I last talked to you about it. Now she's actively trafficking people out of sex industry. Yeah. And that's, what, like, that's part of my testimony, not because I did it, not because I experienced it, but because I watched it happen. And so when the world comes at you and the world tries to say that the way of Jesus is bigotry, you can say, no, no, let me tell you about the friend I have, the person who I, I went and I hung out with them when they were low, when everyone else just thought they were nothing. They were the lowest, they were the weakest. Everyone hated them and despised them. They were homeless or a prostitute or whatever people group was outcast by that society. And Jesus was the one who lifted them up. Jesus was the one who, my father, my patron, come into his family, let me tell you about what he's done. Right, or, 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 or like the time, or like when the world says that, that you know, the, this whole forgive your enemies thing, like it doesn't make sense. 
It doesn't work, it's just a tool of the oppressor turning the other cheek that perpetuates oppression. You can say, no, let me tell you about the enemies that I met and loved and the persecutors that I prayed for and how they turned around and how the Lord took them from captors to liberators. It works, it's beautiful, it's true. I have a good father, come join his family. And when the world tells you that, you know, the way of Jesus, it just, it just grows shame in people. They just feel bad about it, and then their mental health declines, and they end up an addict or whatever. You can say, no, let me tell you, not about what I experienced, but let me tell you about my good friend right here. Let me tell you about the brokenness that they spent years trying to fix on their own, but they couldn't, and then they received the charis of God, the free, freely given gift of the blood of Jesus, and now they're free. If we want to grow our testimony, let's hit the streets. Let's go see where God might do a miracle that we don't expect him to. I guarantee you there is no place at all the power of God is not waiting to show up. And I know I just spent a long time talking about what happens outside of these walls, and I, and I don't want to diminish from that. I really want to encourage you, have a messier life. Find some people who haven't tasted of Jesus. Learn to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. But I also think that the Lord wants to grow some testimonies in here today. Maybe you're the person who's in here saying, I, I am the person who haven't tasted, who hasn't tasted yet of the power of God. My testimony hasn't even begun yet. And I think Jesus wants to instill in you an understanding of that freely given gift. Maybe you're saying, I haven't accepted that gift of grace today. I think Jesus is saying, here it is. Will you take the gift? Will you take the ring? Will you show up and be faithful? I'm just giving it to you. I know you feel like a loser. I know you've been a loser. But I'm a victor, and I'm offering this to you, and you can overcome by my blood. You can be clean by my blood. And maybe you're the person who has experienced that for a long time. You get it, you understand it, you've got your mind and your heart wrapped around the gift of God but you don't know if you've really been engaged with it. But well, this is pistos. What, what role do you play? Just show up and be faithful. You don't have to be perfect. Again, you're not paying him back for that free gift, but just be faithful. Show up and love his sheep. We're gonna move into a little bit uh, of a time of response here. Um, and in just a minute, uh, this is kind of just catching some of you off guard, but we have some people who come up to pray for us. Um, and I'm gonna ask the people who come up to pray today to maybe spend a little bit of time as you pray for people to wait and see if the Lord might speak to whoever you're praying for, might have a prophetic word for them. Uh, David shared a couple of things with me as he was praying uh, about this, as he knew kind of what I was gonna be preaching on today. Um, he said he feels like there's someone, uh, someone here today who's, who's really dealing with loneliness, particularly that follows divorce, and feeling like I'm not overcoming that. And that there's another person perhaps in the room who feels like, like what they're really struggling with is this temptation towards adultery. And you don't know if you're gonna overcome that. There's another person in here perhaps who's dealing with sorrow and depression. 
And maybe there's a couple people who are, who are, are looking at the possibility of shifting their life into a new environment and they're not sure if they're going to overcome in that environment. And I feel like maybe there might be some people who are scared because they watch on social media all their friends, the people who so faithfully love Jesus for so long, watching them drop off like flies, one after the other after the other. And you think, is that me? Because I'm wrestling with these same questions. And for all of these people, I think the encouragement is to remember that you are clean, that the shame, that the guilt, they don't hold you anymore, that the accusers' accusations, they may once have been true, but they've now become lies. Find people who have a testimony of having overcome the thing that you're afraid that you can't overcome. And let them strengthen you with their testimony. Lean into what Jesus wants to do in your life today. So I'm gonna invite the people who would come up for, uh, to pray with us. I'm gonna invite them to come on up right now. I'm sorry, it's a little more awkward than it normally is once the music starts. Um, uh, but if you're one of the people who usually prays with us, if you would kind of come on up here. Um, and then we're going to invite you guys, if, if you want to respond to this. If you feel like, man, I've accepted the charis of God, the freely giving gift of his grace before. But today I just, I need to know that I'm grabbing it again. I need to, you know, kind of like look at my ring. Maybe take it off and look at it and remember the gift of grace that Jesus had. Or maybe I have never accepted that before. Now's the time to do that. Or again, maybe you're that person who's just struggling to overcome and you need to grow the testimony. You need to go see things. I just want to encourage you to come here because I think the people who are going to pray for you today, they might be able to share with you a glimpse of the testimony that Jesus has that he's uh, intending to grow in you. And so there's something kind of beating in your heart. I know we don't usually do like a big call and it doesn't need to be you know, anything that it's not really happening between you and the Lord, but, but if there's something in your heart, if Jesus is calling you, I wanna encourage you, don't miss out on an important opportunity for a little bit of pistis, a little bit of faith. Just faith enough that you would come forward, the Lord might speak to you. He might give you a fresh charis. Don't miss this opportunity. Jesus, we love you and we worship you and we want everything that you have for us, Lord. We want to be faithful. And we thank you for your blood that makes the enemy's accusations into lies. Because your blood is so much stronger than sin and death. Would you speak to us today? Amen.